Hello and welcome back to the Steph Gordon Show. I am here today with somebody who I am a little bit in awe of, to be completely honest. I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. I'm here today with Iris Smith, who is the original founder of The Quick Click in 2017. And since then, she has taken huge strides to challenge the perception of traditional beauty that is marketed within the industry. Her values for empowerment and self-expression are what sets her apart from other entrepreneurs. She really advocates for real people, real experiences, and real issues such as mental health and self-perception. Her revolutionary vision for the Quick Blick was to redesign the way consumers applied winged eyeliner, including me. I think I was one of the first adopters of the Quick Flick, which led Iris to feature on Shark Tank just three months after the brand's launch and subsequently turning down a $300,000 offer, which is insane and we're going to dive into today. This decision allowed Iris to build her products into a multi-million dollar business with expanding deals with retailers such as Priceline and Superdrug. And we are so excited to have this living queen of beauty here with us today. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. What a lovely intro. Thank you it's for that. It's always like so much, isn't it? When someone intros you and you're like, oh my gosh, don't put me up on that pedestal. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we're so lucky to have you here. So, I mean, aside from the glitz and glam of the beautiful bio and you know who you are and what you've achieved, who's Iris Smith behind closed doors? Uh, to be honest, I think what you see is what I am. I don't really have like a different facade that I put on social media and who is really me. And I think that's why like people can connect with my brand is like I do try to be as authentic as possible, speak about like real issues that everyday people experience. So I think yeah, if you were to go on my social media, like what you see that it's that is really who I am. <laughs> and I love it because it's so funny. Like when you first started, I mean, you started in business really similar time to me. I, I founded my first business in 2017, did not have quite the success that you had. But I remember watching you kind of go on this this huge rise to fame. And I remember at some point, probably two years later or so, falling back into your world and looking at your social media for some reason. It must have come up in my feed or something. And I saw this really real approach to social media that I hadn't really seen anywhere else. And it was silly and dorky and you were making fun mm-hmm. of yourself. And it was just so nice because, I mean, we're all like that behind closed doors, right? We all... Yeah silly and play games and are totally ourselves. And it's so nice to see somebody in the beauty industry perpetuating that because that's what often is missing. Yeah. It's not so curated and and perfect, I suppose. It's yeah, just trying to be authentic and real and just connect with people, I suppose. It's beautiful. So what did you sell to make your very first dollar as an entrepreneur? I well, I mean, we're really gonna go back and turn the clocks back. I guess my like entrepreneur journey started even before the quick flick. I'd always been like a business person at heart, I think. So I think the very first things I started selling was origami at school for five cents. Yeah. Yeah, girl. Yeah, girl. Um, I then did homemade lip balms that I took to my local church and sold all the lip balms to all these like old ladies. I think for like $2. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You were getting rich so young. How old would you have been then? Uh, Well, the origami, I would have probably been six years old at the time. And then I did like my own little jewelry. I lo- like was making jewelry, selling that at school as well. So I mean, yeah, it started really all the way back then. But if we're talking about the quick flick, the first product I did was obviously the weaned eyeliner stamp, which you mentioned before. Before that, I tried like a few other little businesses, but they just didn't feel right. They never really took off. But you got to try a few things right before you find what works for you. 
And that's a really beautiful thing, you know, for our listeners to hear because I think sometimes, you know, the first business they try maybe doesn't go the way they expected it to go. And a lot of people kind of take that and then go, oh, maybe business isn't for me. Maybe I'm actually just not very good at this. And so it's kind of nice to hear that. I mean, first of all, origami at five cents is probably not going to get you to the multi-million dollar business you've got right now. It was a rat for a six-year-old. It was amazing. Yeah, girl, you would have been the best friend of everybody at the lolly store. (laughs) Yeah, well, you could buy lollies for like 20 cents back then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, So one of the things I love about your story, of course, and I'm sure that, you know, it's something that everybody wants to talk about because it's so interesting is I remember when Shark Tank first came out and I was like, oh my God, I would love to be on Shark Tank. But I used to think to myself, like, I couldn't do that. I, Mm -hmm. you know, my idea is not good enough. There's no way that I'd put myself in that situation, you know, to be judged and criticized publicly by these people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they were quite shameful for people and hard. It's a TV show. It's entertainment, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. Correct. And so I was like, I don't think I could put myself in that situation. So tell me about your Shark Tank experience. Um, you know, how did it feel to kind of go into a room full of giants when I think your business was three months old? So you, you were still mm. quite young and fresh in business. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely had those thoughts around not feeling ready. I'm not far enough in. What do I know? But like, it's all just stories we tell ourselves, right? And it's really up to you to decide what's actually true for you. So yeah, at the time I got a email from one of the editors of the Shark Tank show. They'd seen, I believe, a Daily Mail article of mine in December. Yeah, so like literally three months in of starting my business. And they said, yeah, look, we're from the show. We're looking for potential people to apply. And obviously, like I was quite flattered that they reached out to me and thought, oh, me? You want me to go on? And yeah, I was quite hesitant really to apply. I actually wasn't going to apply until it was about one o'clock in the morning. (laughs) The applications to submit cut off at midnight. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to film it on my iPhone and submit this and just see what happens. Like I just had this little like burst of energy and I was like, oh, just do it, Iris. Like, what did you have to lose? So yeah, I filmed like this really crappy video on my iPhone, submitted it late, but it still was accepted. And then yeah, literally the next day that editor rung me and was like, oh my God, we love your video. Like it's it's so raw and authentic because like I was showing how I was packing orders at literally like one in the morning. And I think they really liked that because normally like all these applications that they get are probably professionally filmed and look really polished. But mine was probably like more UGC, what we call now. (laughs) Um, And I was creating UGC without even knowing it back then. And yeah, I mean, rest was history. After that, I was asked to go and do like a fake Shark Tank audition, which happened in Perth. And you do like a fake pitch, essentially. I guess they're trying to sort of like test how you would go under pressure in front of people. What is your pitch like? And then, yeah, they were like, we really want you to be on the show. So I flew over to Sydney to film it. And then, yeah, show ad. Was it terrifying the day that you actually walked in? I mean, you'd had this audition, which I mean, that's so interesting because you don't even hear about those things, obviously. Behind yeah, you. the backstory. Totally. So you went in there that day and you were standing in front of these, like I said, these giants. Like, how did it feel to like be repping your thing? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> to be completely honest, it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. I would say like I'm pretty confident when it comes to presenting, public speaking, like I went to uni and um, 
I did interior architecture. So a lot of our course was focused on going up, presenting your ideas, presenting your designs, answering questions. A lot of the times they were negative, negative feedback from the people who we were presenting to. So they really tried to to mold us into people who could sort of, you know, navigate criticism. So I went in probably more confident than the average person who hasn't really had that experience. But yeah, I was absolutely terrified, especially because you have to memorize your entire pitch. You don't have any aids or cards that you can utilize. And I think my pitch went for about five minutes. So yeah, I was really scared. And more so because I knew if I stuffed up, they would play that. Because like it makes good television when someone like freaks out. And they're like, oh my God, I forgot. I'm like, I know they'll play this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so you went in there, you repped your thing. And then a lot of people get rejected um, mm. and their business ideas are like, thank you so much for coming, go work on these things and you know maybe try coming back again. But that didn't happen for you. You got an offer. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the times people get rejected is because they go in asking for a ridiculous sum of money and they don't have solid figures to back up what they're asking. So, I mean, I've been a watcher of Shark Tank for years, even Dragon's Den, which is the UK version. So I I was aware of what to do, what not to do. So I went in really knowing, you know, my numbers, what's my projected growth, what's, you know, a reasonable evaluation that's not going to go, oh my God, are you absolutely messing around here? And I think that's what like really spoke to them because initially when I went in, I mean, most of the panel bar, the two women are men and they just didn't really get how could eyeliner be such a big thing because they don't come from, you know, cosmetic backgrounds. When I started to talk numbers, they were like, oh, hang on a minute here. Like we're listening now. (laughs) Yeah. I think that really helped me. And obviously turning over such a large sum only three months in and just where I was kind of at at that stage in the business. I think that really helped me. So what happened? Like when you got that offer, I mean, you turned it down, which is so incredible and terrifying and crazy for a lot of people watching would have been like, oh, and and people in your world watching you do this like so how did that all come about so I did take the offer on the show I turned it down after the show finished so on the show you see me accept the offer but after the show there's all this like due diligence that takes place and that doesn't take place until like literally months after you film so like to put it into perspective I filmed in February my episode aired end of May. It was almost June. And the actual due diligence didn't actually start till after the show aired. So, I mean, you you can imagine how much had changed since I went on in February. Especially and if you had so much growth in that first three months. I mean, exactly. that's doubling, tripling, quadrupling if you're in hyper growth. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, at that time, I didn't really need the deal anymore. And my business, the evaluation had gone up. A lot of things that I'd gone in onto Shark Tank wanting, you know, retail support, potential capital to support that retail growth. I had just naturally gotten myself to that position during that time period. So after like reflecting on it and getting advice from people, it was kind of like, you don't really need to go forward with this, which is why I didn't. Obviously, I was, you know, very grateful for everything that happened and appreciative of the offer, but it just wasn't aligned with me and my business at that stage anymore. I love that. So Iris, 
three months into business, where were you at in terms of the numbers, right? Like what kind of mm-hmm. revenue had had you been able to establish within three months? And then where were you by the time you kind of came around to that part of the offer? Like how much had your business grown by that point? What did that look yeah. like? So three months in, I was already at 100k months. And by the time the due diligence happened, I was at half a million dollar months. Insane. And um, so yeah. and so that they, I think they had like a three hundred thousand dollar offer and some support or, or something like that. But you were just kind of like, I make more than that a month now. And also like you said, the support that they were going to be able to give you, you had the retailers, I imagine you already locked in the retailers, the connections that you were hoping to get, you kind of already made. Yeah, I already had a deal with Priceline in motion at that point. So Priceline actually reached out to me before I, I even went on Shark Tank. So a lot of people think, oh, you know, you got into Priceline because you went on TV. But they had just seen me on social media and one of the buyers reached out literally like three weeks after I filmed the episode. So it would have been March, early March. So that was already in motion. We'd had a lot of publicity from influencers utilizing it and like organically utilizing like um, Huda Beauty was a a big one who really sort of like exploded the brand even more because she used our eyeliner stamps and said like this is the best eyeliner I've ever used. It's better than Kat Von D. So it was just like lots of really good things that were just happening organically. Yeah, which contributed to my decision to not move ahead. And... I mean, all of that's absolutely incredible and so insane. It actually leads me to a question that I had later on, but I'm going to bring forward because I think it ties in so perfectly. I watched an Instagram story or reel of yours where you mentioned that Priceline had reached out to you after seeing one of your videos Mm. and had asked to stalk you. Very similar to Shark Tank had reached out to you. It it sounds like you you were getting publicity reaching out to you Mm. to do interviews and, and things like that. So it sounds like you were kind of super attracting all of these opportunities to you at this point in time. How and why do you think your brand stood out? Yes, it was so innovative. It is so innovative and it is so different. And especially at that time, like, I mean, winged eyeliner was the thing in 2017 mm-hmm. and I was doing it and it, you know, it was the whole holding your hand on the counter and you've got your arm pointed in all awkward directions and you mm-hmm. get so thick, it's basically covering your entire eyelid. Um <laughs> And so what do you think made your brand stand out? It's a great question. I've never gotten that before. To be honest, I, th- I know it sounds cliche, but I do think it's what you said is that it was different and it did stand out. And I wasn't trying to be like every other makeup brand. It was very innovative at the time. Like I've got a patent on the eyeliner stamp. There was nothing really like it on the market. And it was solving a common problem that a lot of people had when it came to applying winged eyeliner. And I do also think it was just the timing of it. Like you said, it was kind of that Instagram makeup era of like the thick brow, the thick wing. So it was just kind of like right place, right time, right positioning. There's definitely a bit of luck that comes with launching a business as well. Like sometimes it's just everything sort of falling in place at the right time. But you aligned yourself cleverly as well with influencers. That was clever. I think that mm. you probably, yes, right place, right time, I understand. But also... It's right place, right time because you found the problem and you yeah. solved it fast. And that is why it was right place, right time. It was right place, right time because yes, no one else had done it. You did it faster than they did. You felt mm. the problem. You probably had the problem and all of your girlfriends would have had the problem. And then you didn't play small on getting that mm. there. Like to be able to get your business to 100K months in three months, you didn't play small. You were like, I'm going to reach out to every influencer. I'm going to get this in the hands of everybody I can. It wasn't like you created this thing and then just kind of sold it to a few mates, you know? Yeah. 
No, that's very true. Influencers definitely was a massive contributing factor. And again, it was a different landscape back then. It's not like it is now. It was cheaper to work with influencers. You could send something to an influencer. They would probably post about it. And if an influencer did post, that would look like you know $5,000 in sales off one post. Mm. It wasn't as saturated as it is now. And there was a little bit more trust with influencers, especially those bigger influencers that had a large audience. So yes, that definitely did help. And off the back of those influencers posting, you know, media saw it, then they started writing articles during reviews. It was just that kind of like roll on. Snowball effect. Snowball yeah, effect. yeah, absolutely. So in a changing landscape that we have now where social media isn't what it used to be, some ways it's yeah. better probably for business. And in other ways, Mm. you know, the things that worked then probably don't work now for the same level. Bearing in mind, you probably have a lot more capital to be able to throw out marketing budgets and things like that now than you did initially. Mm. How do you stay ahead? How do you stay in it? How do you stay on top of it in terms Mm of getting your brand out there, rolling with the new landscapes? Like, you know, we've got Reels, we've got TikToks. It's a very constant, very fast evolution. Do you have a team that manages that now? Or do you always keep your finger really on the pulse? I always hit my finger on the pulse because I I never want to be left behind. And like I really enjoy learning and staying with the times, as they say. But I mean, to answer your question, I think like, what would I do now, right? If I started? Yes, let's start with that question. If you were to start today, what would you do now if you were starting sure. if you were a startup business? So, I mean, it's what I am doing now. I would focus very heavily on organic social media, in particular TikTok. I think it's really moved to TikTok and I've seen businesses literally be built practically overnight from a few viral videos. And I feel like it's almost the whole influencer positioning has switched to the brand being the influencer and the people or the person behind the brand being the influencer. A lot of the really successful brands that I've seen on TikTok, for example, even Instagram, they're very involved in talking about their story, who's behind the scenes, what's the day-to-day look like, what does it look like developing the product, let's get our customers involved in developing the product, let's ask them questions along the way and really make sure we create this product that really solves all of their pain points. Mm. So I feel like that's how it's shifted and that's what I've tried to do with like my own personal TikTok and also our brand TikTok is focused on showing more of the not so glamorous behind the scenes, what actually goes into creating a business. Why am I so passionate about these products? And I think people just naturally will gravitate towards brands that actually show that they care and put their customers at the forefront. I still think influencers does work. Our approach is more focusing on affiliates and more of those like grassroots style influencers, as well as like PR still absolutely works. And if you can't afford to have a PR agency or someone in your team approaching PR, you can absolutely reach out to writers. Most of them have their own Instagrams or LinkedIn. There is still ways to do it without having to outlay a lot of money. And if you've got a great story or your product solves a really great problem, you're just naturally going to get that publicity because people want to write about it. Yeah, totally. And that's where on this podcast and for anyone listening, we talk a lot about your unique point of difference, your unique selling proposition. And I think that that word gets thrown around so loosely because people are like, oh yeah, my unique selling proposition is that like, you know, we're friendly. <laughs> like, no, that's that's not it. I mean, like, That's not unique. <laughs> that's not that unique. Correct. Yeah. And so it's like when Iris came on the scene with this and even with her subsequent products, like 
the beauty fridge was, you know, that was yours. That was your thing that you brought to the market. And so these things are so different. And I remember when the beauty fridge came out and even my partner was like, the heck, why the fuck would somebody want a fridge to put their makeup in? Like, I'm so confused. If why would you? Correct. If you live in Australia, it's really not that confusing to be completely yeah. honest. <laughs> so I think it's like, you know, it actually brings like unique to the market that does stand out. And, and I love that. Hey, I want to switch up the topics. Business is great. Your personal story is something that really is an undercurrent of pretty much everything I've seen written about you and every piece of media that's, mm. that's come out about you and also even the content that you share on your social media. You've done a lot of self-work over the past five or six years. It's probably oh, yeah. like it's been a bit of a journey. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a journey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and as you know, business, I think, forces everyone to go through that journey. But do you want to tell us a little bit about where you were when you started the Quick Flick compared to kind of where you are now and, and what that journey a little bit has looked like? Yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Apologies. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I'll try and put it into as short as I can. Otherwise, this podcast will be three hours long. <laughs> so yeah, essentially, I mean, if you don't know absolutely anything about my story, I came from a very abusive upbringing and suffered very traumatic childhood abuse up until the age of 17 when I left home. And I didn't realize it for the first few years after I left home, but I definitely was struggling with PTSD, depression, anxiety, just a lot of stuff that I hadn't processed being at home when I was in that environment. It all started to to bubble to the surface after I left. And it really reared its ugly head in... When did I go on Shark Tank? 2018. Yeah, it would have been, it was around the time of Shark Tank. A lot of things started coming to the surface for me, in particular, not feeling fulfilled, despite me thinking the harder I work, the more I put into my work, the more money I earn, the more beautiful materialistic things I can purchase. Maybe one day I'll be happier. And that just wasn't the case. So at that point, yeah, on, on paper, you know, you would look and think, what is this girl? complaining about. Her business is doing amazing. She's got, you know, everything she could possibly want on paper. I had a lovely place. I had a boyfriend of five years at the time, a really nice car. Money wasn't really an issue for me. But I remember driving home after finishing work and just thinking like I just wish there was a reset button on my life. I just I hated myself. I hated everything about myself. I thought I was broken. Like nothing could ever fix me. I just like kept telling myself like you are so fucked up like nothing nothing can save you is how I really felt. Oh, it's still emotional for me to say. <laughs> but that was like a massive catalyst for me where I really thought I've hit rock bottom here. The only way is up. What can I do for the first time in my life to really take control of my destiny and get myself to where I really want to be? I was really in search of that happiness. Like I was like I really wanted to feel happy and content. That's what I was really lacking. So I made a lot of changes. I got out of my relationship. I was in quite a toxic relationship because when you don't do that inner work, you keep attracting what you've grown up with and what you think is acceptable, how to be treated. So I got out of that relationship, started going to therapy, which was really hard for me because in the relationship I was in at the time and and my partner's family, they knew I had demons that I needed to work on. But Their approach to it, even though I think they meant well, but their approach to it was, you're a psychopath, you need to go get help because you've got serious issues. Um, Rather than approaching it from a place of love and we are here here to support you, 
there are people who can help you get better. It was, you're crazy, you need help. So They almost mind, like demonize the therapy, right? And so then the therapy means that you're broken. And at that time, like therapy is quite exactly. common now. Like everyone goes to therapy. And if you don't have a therapist, you're like, what are you doing? But it wasn't so common back then. It was not common back then. No. Yeah, not common back then. Yeah. So exactly what you said. I refused to go to therapy for so long because I thought if I do go, then I'm admitting that I'm crazy and that there's something wrong with me. And yeah, so so leaving that environment, leaving that family... And it's not me speaking poorly of them. I think it was just a lack of education. Them, you know, growing up in a completely different era where mental health was not spoken about. <laughs> and the only people who had mental health issues ended up in a, a ward. So, yeah, so I left that and I, I started going to therapy. I really, really dedicated myself to it. I went every single week without fail. I um, had like literally my therapist on WhatsApp and I could message her at any point. So that really, really helped me. And yeah, I dove in for like a solid, I would say 18 months, just went really, really hard with working on pulling myself out of that hole and kind of rebuilding like my entire life because I'd realized that the life that I'd built around me was coming from that toxic iris who was attracting people of a similar vibration, people who didn't treat me right, people who didn't have my best interest in mind, a lot of fake friends, even just, you know, the the clothes that I was wearing, like it just no longer fit after I did all of that work. It was literally like I shed this massive layer of me and I was like a new person. So yeah, I, I really focused for a good 18 months on that and did a lot of solid work. I'm not going to lie. It was exhausting. It was very painful. There was a shit ton of tears. It was one of the hardest things I've had to do. But would I change it? Absolutely not. I'm in a much better place now. And I would say I I still continue to work on that. I'm kind of... It's funny. I was having this conversation yesterday at a, a ladies lunch that I went to. And I was saying this year has kind of been a bit of a rest year for me in the sense of I'm actually enjoying just who I am in this moment and no longer thinking I'm still broken. I need to keep doing self-development work because I actually then (laughs) fell into a bit of a a trap where I became obsessed with working on myself. Let me do the next course. Let me go to another breath work. Let me do this. Let me do that. And I was like, hang on a minute. This is me still telling myself that I'm, I'm not okay the way I am. And there's still something I need to work on or fix. So this year I've really just taken a breath and I, and Sometimes you have to enjoy the work you've done, right? <laughs> That's why yeah. we do the work. Yes. So yeah, this year has been a little bit of a step back for me. I've just really focused on my business, to be completely honest, and implementing a lot of the things I've learned on my business. And I think maybe next year I'll pick it back up and maybe get back into it a little bit more. Yeah, beautiful. And I think, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. And you did it so eloquently and very fast. <laughs> so you nailed it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think one thing I loved that you said, and I think this is where people kind of fall down is, you know, they do six sessions of therapy and they're like, oh, sorted, done, got it sorted. And we know that it takes, I mean, you develop those toxic traits over 20 odd, 30 odd, depending on how old the listener is, 40 odd years. And Mm -hmm. six sessions, six months is probably not going to help you. It's probably not quite enough to like, I'm constantly in and out as well. I'm I'm with you. I do, you know, self-development for a couple of months and then I take a couple of months off and just integrate. I think integrating is integration. integration. Uh, Yeah. You know, you've got to like, 
And instead of trying to fix more, it's just like, hey, how is this fitting on me now? You know? Absolutely. And you'll find the next thing that opens up that goes, oh, I'm feeling that yucky feeling again. Mm-hmm. Something is there that maybe I need to like get back into therapy and talk about again. And it's 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 reared its ugly head in a different way, in a different light. But I can feel it's sure. the same pattern and, and so you jump back in. But I think where people kind of go wrong is they kind of expect the work to be done and done quickly. Mm. I think everyone's looking for a quick fix. <laughs> no um, such thing. No such thing. And so I love that you attended therapy the way that you seem to attend everything in your life, which is 110% all in. In business, in life, in relationships, in self-work, that's how you get the best results, right? It's just by 110% commitment. Showing up. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that's the hardest thing, right? Is the actual showing up to therapy, booking that session. I mean, for me, that was the hardest part. It took me years until I made that first session. And when I went, I thought, why have I been putting this up for so long? I think the biggest thing for me, and I still remember, is like my first therapy session, just having someone tell me, you are not broken. You are not fucked. You are not broken. There is nothing wrong with you. You've just experienced some really hectic shit and you're actually responding to it in an absolutely normal way. Yeah. I think that was the biggest turning point for me. And I was like, oh, okay. Just actually hearing someone say that to me was just, it completely switched everything. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way that when you said you just got hip showing up and like, if you've done therapy, you will know that's not easy. Like no. the first few sessions is incredible because you feel so light and so lifted. But somewhere in the icky middle, you're uncovering some big, big, big stuff usually. Yeah. And it's hard to show up every week. It's like you can convince yourself, I don't need this this week. You know, mm-hmm. it's very easy to try and convince yourself that you don't need to go or that you should stop or that you should put your energy somewhere else, you know, but it's that consistent commitment to showing up that... Yeah ultimately, you know, shifts the belief systems and rewires the brain in new ways. I think it's also about asking yourself, like, why do I feel that I don't need to show up? Like, what is making me think that I'm not deserving of going to this session? Why am I making excuses? It goes back to that, like, self-validation piece and, and that worthiness piece. Why am I telling myself that I'm not worthy of this therapy, of worthy of healing, deserving of healing? And when you start thinking that way, you're like, yeah, holy shit, like, I would show up for that. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that really encouraged me was after I went to a a few sessions as well, you kind of realize, you know, that whole like inner child piece and and healings, different ages that are still within you that are the triggers that are coming out. I mean, I've got it on my phone still. I've got a picture of my younger self on my phone. Bless her. Yeah. So if you're not going to show up for yourself right now, show up for her, show up for that younger child that's in you that's traumatized or trying to deal with whatever it is that's still rearing its head in your current life, that would get me through on the hard days. I would think Mm. if I can't show up for myself now, I'm going to show up for that five-year-old Iris who's scared and who needs someone to love her right now in this moment. And that really helped me. It's crazy how we do things for other people, right? So if you're in that mindset, position it that it's someone else, even though it's you. Yeah. And that really but, it's a, me. but it's a child. And when you actually witness the child, when you actually see the child Absolutely. and you know, it's, you know, it's you, but you would never, like you look at her and you're like, I would never want harm to come to you. Oh my God. I mm. wish I could just go back and give you a cuddle. You know, Absolutely. like I, I wish I could tell you right now that it's all going to be okay. You know, and, mm. and having that, like that instant connection with that little girl, you know, and knowing that she lives inside of you, Absolutely. She literally lives inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's so beautiful. I love that you still have that on your phone. 
Yeah. <laughs> just guys, because yeah. obviously you can't visualize this. It's her screensaver, just so you know. Yeah. So, so beautiful. So mm-hmm. I'll wrap this up, conscious of your time. If you were to give three pieces of advice to our listeners, they're startup female entrepreneurs. It could be business. It could be life. It could be mindset. What have been the biggest lessons for you? That's a big question. Sorry. Oh my God. I'm asking the hugest questions today. Oh, those are very You can start big. with one lesson if you like. One is good. One lesson that I've learned. Okay. Well, I'm going to go quite practical here. I'm not going to give woo-woo advice here. But I think one of the most practical and hard lessons that I've learned was around really taking control of your finances when it comes to your business and understanding your numbers. And a massive thing that I unlearned and re-scripted throughout my journey and personal journey was that there's no such thing as I'm not a numbers person. I'm not good at math. I don't get it. I'm never going to get it. Oh my God, I'll leave that to someone else. No, that is a story you're telling yourself. And I don't believe that you're either, you know, an analytical numbers person or a creative person. Don't put yourself in that box. And the way that I sort of overcame it was obviously COVID hit and I was literally forced to look at it and take responsibility and understand how am I going to drive my business through this pandemic and keep us afloat. So that was a massive wake-up call for me and really forced me to work through that story I was telling myself, I'm bad at maths. I know that story originated from my parents, from my teachers telling me that I was terrible at maths. I was never going to do it. I didn't even do maths in my final year at high school because I thought I was that bad. But do you know what? I'm actually really good at it. And because I have a very creative approach to things, I can find creative ways to approach my business financially, make little tweaks and make better outcomes as a result. So that's one thing I would definitely say. And I find a lot of entrepreneurs fall into this trap because I think naturally some of us can lean more towards that creative side and thinking we're creative artists, not numbers people. So I would definitely work on that. (laughs) That would be one of my biggest lessons. Thank you for that because I talk about this all the time and especially because I work with mostly female entrepreneurs and that's the story. Men manage money and often in their lives and in their current worlds, men are managing their money. They've had help from their parents or their husband manages the finances or if you look just at the finance sector of our world, it's mostly male. And so, you know, we have grown up in a culture and a belief system where we don't manage money. But one of the biggest things that I teach, and I guess one of my missions in life is to help women to get on top of their finances and take control because you should never be able to rely on somebody else to eat. Um, And so you need to know your numbers, especially if you're in business. You need to be able to make financial decisions independently for yourself. It doesn't mean that you Mm -hmm. can't consult somebody. It doesn't mean that you can't get somebody's way in, but ultimately your money is for you and for your family and for the things that you want to create. And so you should have understanding and control. Absolutely. Very well said. Yay. Well, Well, Iris, Um, did you have anything else to add? I mean, that's probably, let's leave it at that. Let's leave it there. (laughs) You're like, I could go on all day. How long have you got? I've got all the tips. No, that was so practical and so needed and so perfect. So thank you. I have loved having you on today. Guys, You, if you haven't, first of all, bought a product, you need to go and check out the Quick Click website. It's it's still the website. It's the Quick Click, yeah? Yes, thequickflick.com.au. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. We'll link it in the show notes. Go check out some of their incredible products. The product line is so healthy now. Oh my God, I went on there the other day and I was like, I've been missing out. There are so many products here now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I remember when you had like the click click, then you brought out the brow. And now I'm like, whoa, there's a whole empire. Yeah, the sunscreen yeah. just 
blowing up. So guys, go and check it out. But also please go and follow Iris on social media. Her Instagram will be and TikTok will be linked in the show notes. So go and check her out. Iris, thank you so much for being here today. It was so nice to have a local Perth podcast as well. My pleasure. And if you love this episode, guys, we would love it if you would take a screenshot, tag us both on social media and tell us your biggest takeaway. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Babe, thank you for tuning into today's episode. It means the absolute world to have you here with me. If you want more, head to the show notes below to check out our latest free resources, along with the exclusive link for podcast listeners to book in a free 15-minute strategy session to find out how you can boom your biz. 